Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And now on the equity market, an exceptionally important interview, a conversation with Bikram Chada of Deutsche Bank. His notes are absolutely definitive on the details of the equity market, the correlations, and particularly what flows of money are doing. Binky Chada, thrilled to have you uh, with us. I read and reread your paragraph on something I lecture about, which is positioning is everything. Tell me the positioning or lack thereof of this bull market run. So what I would say, Tom, is that, uh, you know, the story of basically the huge bounce that we've had since uh, March the 23rd uh, in the S&P 500 is, is, is really, you know, a positioning story. So what we had is a very, very unusual shock in the sense that, you know, it reached us all basically in terms of the news at the same time. So you have a very synchronized negative impact. Uh, the market, as you know, at the time was, uh, you know, max overweight across basically every spectrum of uh, equity investors. And so we all got the news at the same time, uh, clearly very negative shock. So everyone went basically max negative. And since then, it's been largely basically a story of what I would call, you know, a really classic short squeeze. Um, I think the actors relative to, you know, the historical textbook that you may have been lecturing about is a little bit different. I think systematic strategies are much, much more important. Uh, and so, you know, if we fast forward the tape basically to this week as earnings begin, I would basically say, you know, the squeeze is basically on again. Right. Uh, I think that there is a fundamental catalyst for that. And that is, you know, we think earnings are basically uh, set up to beat. And I can talk about that. But in the context of underweight positioning, especially right. in the cyclicals, as we go to reporting the banks, you know, squeeze is basically continuing. How has your world changed by such substantial negative real rates? How does your equity world change given what fixed income has given you? Uh, so it, 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 I would say that uh, low rates, especially negative rates, uh, you know, are really bad in terms of, uh, you know, made life very, very difficult for uh, active equity fund managers. And that is because, you know, rates are clearly a factor. I mean, if you think about equities, you can take sector, you can take the market, you can sort of line them up on one side as bond-like and at the other end as most equity-like. Uh, so, so rates matter. And uh, when rates are far away relative to sort of, you know, the economic recovery or the cycle, uh, that is basically going to cause some major issues and, you know, has basically caused major issues. So I would argue low rates are negative for the cyclical trade uh, is the bottom line. And so we really do need rates to start going up uh, to have the cyclicals perform. And, uh, you know, as and when the recovery happens, you would expect the cyclicals to perform. But if rates don't go up or are artificially compressed, that's not going to be very easy. I want to be clear, Binky, then, about your view, this idea that positioning favors U.S. equities to go higher. And yet, unless yields, real yields, go up, it's not going to be favorable for cyclicals. Are you saying that the technicals are favorable for big tech right now, even though I'm not sure who's shorting them. I mean, is somebody actually out there aggressively shorting Amazon and Apple and Facebook right now? 
Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I, what, what I would basically say is that, uh, you know, I was speaking about positioning basically at the S&P 500 at the index level. Uh, you know, one of the things that we emphasize is that there's really been sort of a tale of uh, two equity markets. We have the mega cap growth stocks on the one side, the 10 stocks, uh, and they basically, you know, fell by less and have basically been trending up and they are well basically now uh, above where we were at the peak prior to uh, uh, the out of the pandemic everybody else is you know way lower so positioning at the index level i would differentiate from uh, you know within the equity market uh, 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 i would argue you know basically that uh, uh, where everybody is underweight is 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 everywhere else and you know our call is basically that uh, you know it's nothing wrong with the mega cap growth stocks and tech uh, we just argue that it's basically run very far uh, but they do grow much faster so you don't really want to be underweight you want to be neutral uh, but you really want to overweight the cyclicals i would argue you know Tactically, especially for the next two to three weeks, um, uh, absolutely. Uh, I would argue earnings, especially for the cyclicals, are set up for a beat. Uh, if you take a look at the bottom of consensus, you know, as we all know, fell massively as the shock hit in March and April. Uh, but basically, by mid-May, the bottom up consensus had uh, stopped falling, so the downgrades had stopped. Um, and, 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 you know, history would tell you that basically uh, 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 once downgrades stop, depending on what happens to the macro data, uh, it, 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 you know, you're going to get upgrades or downgrades. Yeah. And, and, and what we got basically is massive positive surprises on the macro data. But we also got, uh, it, and, and so the consensus would have started to move up basically with a lag, but what we also got is the resurgence of the virus. So those upgrades basically never happened. Uh, in, in, and, and if you think about the resurgence of the virus in terms of the timing, you know, it was really later and the economic impact was later. If you look at our, you know, macro activity pulse index, so you look at the at, 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 at Citigroup's CZ, you know, you'll see that the data surprises have basically gone to a place they've never been before. I mean, they're running at twice any kind of prior peak. And that should have basically seen upgrades. We didn't get those. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts. But on net, I would basically say that... Uh, you know, the earnings season is likely to beat uh, positioning, especially in the cyclicals, is uh, very low. And the combination of those, you know, explains why the cyclicals and the financials were doing very well on Friday uh, and, and, and why the pressure on the market is basically to move up. Uh, but there is still a fair number of, uh, you know, unknowns. And so it should be, um, you know, it, it, I, I'm not saying it's clear and straightforward, uh, but, but, it never but, but the bias is still up. Let's build on that, shall we? The allocation to cyclicals. I've had many people come on this program and others as well say you want to maintain that allocation to U.S. growth. But if you want to take cyclical risk, take a levered play and take that play through Europe. What's your response to that, Binky? <clears throat> Uh, it's very simple and very short. It's absolutely, I would be, I would be overweight uh, Europe, I would be overweight uh, Japan. Um, it, 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 and, and that's really the same call as basically being overweight uh, the cyclicals in the U.S. Uh, if you take the U.S. equity market and divide it into the mega cap growth stocks and everybody else, so I'll just call them uh, XMCG if you want, uh, you know, you basically see that uh, they bounced from the bottom, but it essentially gone sideways, uh, you know, for the last few months. Um, if you then overlay the regional, other regional equity markets, you'll see that they're all clustered basically around uh, XMCG. So I think for the U.S., it's very important to divide up the two in terms of thinking about sector or stock calls. Um, and, 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 
you know, if, if the growth happens, and clearly it's not going to happen in a straight line, uh, but we've had a pretty big bounce. And what I'm saying is uh, in, in the data so far, and what I'm saying is that that's just really not priced in. Binky, I'm struggling to find people who aren't overweight Europe right now. How vulnerable is that call, at least from your perspective, on a fiscal hiccup this coming weekend? Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, relatively modestly so. I think uh, if, you, if you look at uh, European performance and it, relative to the U.S., and especially if you do it, uh, you know, ex-MCG, uh, you're going to see that, you know, the two are basically moving together. And, and, and Europe actually, you know, exhibits uh, a, a sort of more resilience. Um, and on the policy front, you know, I think that it's important to think about the fact that, uh, you know, if it doesn't happen now, it will happen later. If we don't get it all, we will get some. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, it's, 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 it's always a slightly mushy picture, so I wouldn't dismiss it. So, uh, you know, yes, there can be a negative outcome, but the negative outcome, you know, can change too. So uh, it's, it's not a definitive negative. It's very unlikely. Binky, I've been waiting for a long, long time, and everyone says the same thing. It'll happen eventually. Binky, great to catch up with you, sir. Binky Chana there of Deutsche Bank. For the broader market, there's been a massive conversation about tilting away from the United States and tilting towards Europe. We can start that conversation this morning with Mike Powell, BlackRock Global Chief Investment Strategist. Mike, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Why the revision lower to US equities and the tilt, the more constructive view towards Europe? Sure. So, you know, I think first thing is to say it is an especially negative view on the U.S. I mean, the U.S. both year to date as well as on a multi-year basis has had a tremendous run of outperformance. We just think over the next six to 12 months, there are a set of risks coming into focus. That means the U.S. is going to perform a little more in line with the rest of global equities rather than continuing that streak of outperformance. Whether it's the challenges we're facing on the public health start, uh, public health side around the restart, whether it's some risks around fiscal policy and the upcoming elections, you know, we think the headwinds are stiffening a bit. And when we look to Europe, we see a very robust public health response that's allowing a very strong restart of economic activity there. And we're still quite constructive in, in what we're seeing on the policy side. You know, it's, so, it's so important here, Mike Piles. Life goes on. I mean, we're celebrating back here with our simulcast in the office here at 731 uh, Lexington. Again, thanks to all of our team for helping. Mike Pyle, we're also celebrating mergers and acquisitions, the combinations of Berkshire Hathaway, the combinations of analog devices, can they be supportive for equity markets? So I, I think on balance, we're less focused on the, the M&A story, which, which, agree with you, does have, have some legs. But I think in particular, when we look at the U.S. market, we like two things. You know, we like credit over equities. We see the, the policies that are in place, especially from the Fed looking ahead, continue to be a really strong and resilient source of credit support. And we continue to like the up-and-quality equity marketplace, tech, pharma, those up-and-quality names with strong business models and financial metrics. We think those are the types of themes that are going to continue to be rewarded in the U.S., even as we see those increased headwinds from the, for the equity market overall. Mike, people agree with you with respect to credit, and we see money piling into at least investment-grade U.S. corporate debt, and yet the Fed is actually paring back some of its purchases of corporate debt. Their balance sheet has actually shrunk, and we're heading into a slew of expected bankruptcies. Why go long credit now? So I would say, you know, we continue to see the Fed backstops as extraordinarily credible on the on the credit market side. You know, I think one of the things that's been striking is just 
you know, how little to date the Fed has had to do, to your point. Uh, but because of the credibility and the size of those backstops, which we see is ongoing, we think that the market's going to be able to continue to digest that, 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 that issuance. And moreover, when we look at perhaps some of the choppiness moving ahead around the economic restart because of some of the challenges we're seeing on the public health side, we just think that that backstop is going to be very resilient, even in the face of more challenging <laughs> fundamental circumstances. Mike, I wonder where that leaves your view on U.S. tech right now. More upgrades this morning. Cameron out upgrading its price target on Amazon to a street high 3700 Big tech reporting over the next couple of weeks. What's the view on that now for BlackRock? Yeah, so we're overweight quality exposures on a global basis, including in the United States. I mean, so though we're cautious on the U.S. equity market overall, the parts of the equity market that are closer to the real economy and the real economy challenges closer to some of these risks we see on the fiscal side, up in quality exposures around tech continue to us to appear resilient, you know, kind of regardless of of the state of the world we see moving ahead. So we, we like that part. Mike, this is a US-centric conversation. As the week grows older, the focus will be a whole lot more on Europe and the continent going into the weekend. Upgrading your view on that, Mike, it's a change for BlackRock. Caught up with Rick Reader of BlackRock, your friend and colleague, I'm sure, over the last few months, and he's changed his view on Europe as well. What's behind that, Mike? Well, I think we're seeing two big things at work. Uh, I would say one is uh, the, the really strong public health response we're seeing across the continent allowing a much stronger restart of economic activity. We think that those fundamentals matter and are going to matter and flow through to, uh, to, to, to both economic data and financial markets. And secondly, we do have increased confidence in the overall policy framework there. Obviously, we're going to get some news later this week around the EU summit and how they land the $750 billion, uh, rescue package. We think that's going to largely stay as it's been proposed. Uh, but looking at national fiscal authorities, some steps forward from the ECB, both of those pieces are coming together in ways that look to us pretty constructive. I, I look at this, folks. And Mike Pyle joining us from BlackRock. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television uh, this morning. Mike, something I'm really unclear on is, is health care ballooned like the tech stocks or is health care behind? Uh, so I would say, you know, we sort of see healthcare, particularly uh, the pharma space in the U.S. as having, and in Europe, as having some legs behind it. You know, those are really sort of strong business models. I think in this moment, there's a lot of focus on what uh, that part of the what, what that part of the healthcare world is bringing uh, to society, bringing to the market, and I think that's a space where we see, you know, quite a bit of upside alongside tech. Mike, you talked about how in Europe they've got the virus a bit more under control, or at least that's what it appears uh, from the numbers, certainly in the United States, which is seeing record numbers of people diagnosed with COVID-19. And yet the market doesn't seem to care. And this is something that a lot of people have talked about, that the market goes up even as we get these record tallies. What are the main risks, if not that, to market levels right now in the United States? I mean, is it the election? Is it something else that perhaps people aren't factoring in enough? I think it's kind of all of the above. So I think you know you point correctly to an ongoing set of uh, challenges on the public health side. We think that's going to weigh on the restart, ultimately weigh on some of the parts of the U.S. economy and the U.S. financial markets that aren't as tech 
centric or pharma centric is what we've been describing. I think we see a set of fiscal policy risks both later this month as well as between now and the end of the year, potentially uh, posing some risks around retrenching policy support on the fiscal side too soon. And then I think when we look ahead to the election, I think there's just a good degree of uncertainty both in the lead up to the election itself, uh, what could be a very volatile environment, as well as on the backside of that, a highly divergent uh, uh, set, of, set of policy uh, platforms that, uh, that the voters are going to be choosing from and the investors are going to have to confront when we look past November. Mike, overwhelmingly, the consensus view is the Democratic suite would be negative for this market. Is that your take? So I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, I think on one side, it is clearly right that investors are focused on a set of potential changes on corporate taxes, a significant repeal of what the, the Trump administration and Congress passed in 2017. That will certainly have some flow through the bottom line. But I think the flip side of that coin is, I think relative to other outcomes, it's probably a more constructive one for ongoing fiscal stimulus through the coronavirus shock, uh, much more positive around maybe getting something done on infrastructure and R&D investment, uh, probably more positive in terms of a greater uh, sort of stability and predictability to U.S.-China relations, immigration policy, what have you. So I guess I think what we're saying is, you know, the bottom line uh, risks that investors are focused on are, are real, but there are potentially a set of top-line opportunities that make this a much more balanced picture. Mike, it's a conversation you and I will continue with the rest of the team sometime soon. Mike Powell there of BlackRock. Right now, what we're doing on a Monday is we're resetting, and you can do that with the chief U.S. economist for Nomura Securities, Louis Alexander. He writes exceptionally thoughtful uh, notes, all of this with his backdrop of uh, public service to the nation as well. Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to go to a single sentence buried in your report which is a brilliant summary on the uncertainties of China. Now, we've just seen the virus news out of Hong Kong, but away from that is your exceptionally tepid call on the second half for China. Can that derail global recovery? Look, I, I think the concern about China is it's actually quite vulnerable to what's going on in the rest of the world. And in some ways, they were relatively successful at dealing with COVID-19. And the problem is their recovery at this point is constrained by what's going on in the rest of the world. So in some ways, I would draw it the other direction. Um, China can't do more uh, unless the rest of the world recovers and export demand picks up. And at that point, that's the real constraint on China. Tell us about export demand. Bloomberg has a wonderful summed world trade chart, which, as you know, over the last decade is just flat out grim, ebbing. We're going away from what we knew in our childhoods. Give us an update on the state of the volumes of world trade. Well, look, we, we had a, a kind of 25-year period when trade was growing much more rapidly than <laughs> global GDP. That actually stopped a while ago. And to a certain extent, we've been in a period where globalization has not been the same kind of impetus to growth. Now, obviously, with COVID-19, everything has collapsed. And that's a, just a general function of activity around the world. And the problem is the parts of the world that are dependent, more dependent on trade than any others, and China's the head of it, has been in some senses constrained by where we're going to go going forward. I think one of the big questions after the U.S. election is what's going to happen with trade. You heard uh, Vice President Biden last week talk about this Buy America program. 
He didn't talk about trade policy in great detail last week, but if you look kind of across what he's saying, I don't think we should expect some big change, some big movement back towards a commitment to free trade that you saw under previous Democratic administrations. And so while I'm hopeful that we'll get a cyclical recovery as we all recover from COVID-19 over the next couple of years with vaccines and all of that, like we're not going back to that period when globalization is really driving uh, the global economy. Yeah. Well, Lube, ahead of the election, we're also going to be getting a lot of unemployment figures. You're expecting the unemployment rate to fall back down near 10 percent by the end of this year. And yet some of the soft data, the high frequency data that people are looking at show an increasing weakening in any potential bounce back. How much does that play into a potentially higher unemployment rate in your view at the end of the year this year? Um. So, look, I think there's certainly the risk of that, um, and I would totally agree that the high-frequency data is pointing towards a moderation and potentially even a decline um, over the next coming weeks and months. But I would note that the potential for lockdowns is regional. It's not national. It's very different from what we saw in March and April. And we think there will be a continued recovery. We expect to get a phase four fiscal deal within the next two weeks, and that will be important to sort of continue this on. So I would note the fact that continuing claims for unemployment have continued to come down, even in an environment where initial claims remain very high. There is an awful lot of reallocation going on at this point. Um, And look, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about where the economy is going to be. I would note that even at 10 percent, that's still the peak of where the unemployment rate was a decade ago. And so while that is recovery from where we are now, that's still a very adverse outcome. Lou, you said that you expect a one and a half trillion dollar fiscal add on at some point in the next couple of months. I want to talk about the composition because a lot of people saying the enhanced unemployment benefits had the most direct uh, effect on economic spending on just the consumer outlook in general. How important is the composition of that $1.5 trillion package that you're expecting for your outlook to be correct? Um, it is important. I mean, there, there are different pieces to it. Obviously, you have to do something to make up for the unemployment benefits that are going to come off at the end of July. I think it's unlikely that they will be extended in exactly the same form that they are now, but you need something that replaces that. That's one thing. Second, you do need more support for small businesses, essentially some sort of additional resources that go to support businesses directly. You need also money for state and local governments, because all of the talk of potential layoffs in businesses, if we don't get more support for state and locals, you're going to see the same thing on state and local governments. I think those three pieces all have to be there for this to work. Um, Now, there's also been discussion of another round of tax rebates. To the extent that that's general support, it's not a bad thing to do that. Um, But in some sense, I think you've got to have that. Extend the unemployment benefits, more help for business, but also state and local government. Lou, you've gone through a series of issues there. To some degree, you need to read the political tea leaves to answer the following question. But I wonder on what particular issue you think this effort might come unstuck. Um, 
I think there are some questions about how you define the unemployment benefits and the support for business. There has been uh, uh, some criticism of the very high replacement rates for the unemployment benefits, so Republicans want to change the structure of that. If they really press that issue, that could become a stumbling block. Um, I think there's also a question of what businesses are going to have access to the support. There's obviously been some criticism of the PPP program. There's some restrictions that the Democrats want to put on that. There's also this liability issue that's been important to McConnell, uh, depending on about giving businesses essentially liability protection if, if workers get uh, COVID for coming back to work. Um, how you define that, uh, those are all issues that if strong advocates on one side or the other of those uh, really want to press the issue, they can delay things. Um, I'm hopeful that everybody recognizes how important this is, that this will get done, and it will get done quickly, i.e. before the end of this month. That's our expectation. Yeah. But if we're wrong about that, that'll be a big deal. Well, Alexander, to go back to James Tobin, the giant of Yale University, there was a book years ago. It always comes in in a slowdown. Is growth obsolete? Away from the selected tech names, is growth obsolete? Uh, I think very much not. Um, look, there's um, another old economist who's important here, Art Oaken, who stressed the importance of of the gap between actual employment and, and actual um, output and potential output as being essentially this social loss. I think. This is one of those times when that's very, very important. We've got an economy that is underproducing. We've got an awful lot of people who are unemployed. Um, that's a huge cost, and any things we can do to diminish that over time are very important. Um, that's another way of thinking about that growth question. Uh, so, look, I, this is one of those moments when all of those things are, are very important for us to address. Hey, Lou, always great to get your perspective and insight on this programme. Appreciate your time this morning. Our best to you, yours and the whole of the team at Nomura. Lewis Alexander there. Right now, in an interview that was to be important, but is now ever more important with what we've seen going back and forth between the scientists like Peter Hotez at Baylor and the President of the United States. Joining us now, Marta Wyszynska uh, from Duke Margolis and with her public service. Thrilled that she could be with us today. This linkage of economics, of our policy and statistics into our medicine as well. Again, the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy and the Deputy Director uh, there. Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. We now have a president going after the science within this pandemic. How do the scientists defend themselves? I think what the scientists do is what they always do is put out the facts and talk about what needs to be done uh, to uh, to get us out uh, and have us get through this uh, pandemic. All right. Well, Dr. Voshinska, what are the facts when it comes to getting kids back to school? One of the pivotal issues, President Trump saying it is time and his health secretary saying that the risks are overstated. Are they? The risks aren't overstated, um, but I do agree that it's really important for the kids to get back to school. The question is not necessarily if they should be going back to school, but how to do it safely. I would draw a parallel to how we reopened. There are ways of reopening safely, and some states have shown that it can be done, and there are ways of reopening not so safely. And it's the same thing with schools. There are certain parts of the country where I think um, 
uh, in uh, in uh, person um, education could very much uh, happen. Um, think about uh, New York, New Jersey, um, Delaware, um, and uh, Connecticut. On the other hand, I cannot imagine um, schools uh, reopening in person uh, in Florida, Texas, or Arizona. Or perhaps they could reopen, but they would shut down very quickly because there's so much uh, viral spread in the community that you would have students and staff um, uh, getting sick pretty quickly. Dr. Voshinska, I'm struck by this sort of certainty. You're saying that we know how to prevent the spread of the virus. And yet when I look into how the virus is spread, there still seems to be a lot of uncertainty, whether it is airborne or not, and the WHO's WHO's conflicting guidance there, the question of whether non-symptomatic individuals transmit the virus. Where are we on some of those basic ideas when it comes to the science? We definitely do know that asymptomatic transmission is really critical, and this is really what makes this virus um, so deadly, um, because people are making decisions that really don't account for the fact that they might be spreading the virus. And uh, yes, uh, I do agree that there is uh, disagreement at this point uh, as to whether it is uh, airborne, but if we were to uh, pursue Um, uh, we we do know that being indoors really increases the risk. Poor circulation does matter. We know that uh, social distancing, physical distancing uh, does matter as well, that it works. Uh, We do know that masks are also very helpful if you cannot properly distance uh, from other people. And again, because it's uh, so much of the spread is asymptomatic, uh, or pre-symptomatic, meaning before people have um, uh, symptoms, uh, these kinds of measures really can uh, make tremendous, uh, have a tremendous impact. Professor, one thing I find fascinating here is one day this will be over. Do you think there'll be a permanence to our change of health policy, or do we just go back to what we were doing before? So I would say that I don't know that this will be over. I I think there's going to always be a new normal. I do think that this might become an endemic endemic condition, uh, disease. Uh, We might end up having to live with it, obviously not at the level that we live with it now, uh, but it is possible that it might be something that we might need to get vaccinated for every year. The vaccine might not be um, 100% effective. We might not have a vaccine um, like what we have with measles with um, very strong protective uh, effect. Uh, so I think I think our old normal, which is I think what was the mistake in, in reopening and how people thought about what it would look like. We might never have the old normal um, again, even if we have vaccine and people are broadly vaccinated. Does our health policy become more European-like? That's hard to say, but I will say that with the level of unemployment that we're seeing, um, I think there are going to be questions asked about um, the employer-based insurance system, where this will go, it's hard to say. Um, But um, there are going to be changes um, also, I think, in how we might pay, even within our existing system, how we might um, uh, pay. Uh, Fee-for-service has not uh, worked particularly well during this pandemic because visits have really dropped, um, elective surgeries have dropped, 
the providers that have been part of uh, these newer models, ACO um, uh, type models have done significantly better and have been in much better position to withstand this shock. So um, we're hopeful that this will also be a change that, that will happen. Marta Fozinska, thank you so much. With Duke Margolis, greatly appreciate it this morning on health policy as we come out of this pandemic, or I should say, as we try to come out of this pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.